So I've been playing a lot of Baldur's Gate, as you know. Nice. You have undoubtedly surpassed me in where you are in the game. I'm, oh, I've been I'm really... on Act Three. Like I'm Holy towards the shit. end. I'm just stretching it out now. Yeah. <laughs> but it got me to thinking: what D and D classes would we assign to historical communist leaders? Oh hell yeah! <laughs> All right. First of all, I really don't think any of them are martial like classes. No. Maybe Stalin because he literally was bank robbing. Trotsky led armies. He was yeah, but but that's more of like a like a paladin, like a support. Yeah, it's more like a buff guy, like a bard guy. Well, there is a a fighter subclass where you are able to maneuver people, kind of. Oh, the battlemaster. That's right. Mm-hmm. In five E, right. Mm-hmm. And there's, uh, yeah, I guess that's true, because in Pathfinder, they have, like, uh, the Cavalier class, which does a lot of, like, challenges and stuff like that, of, mm, you know, and also... Like dueling can, shit. Yeah, and it can do, like, buffing of people and stuff. So, like, it's it's not unheard of to be a martial, Support. inspiring general kind of guy. So, Trotsky, okay. I don't know. I don't know. He might be more, I don't know, he might be something, maybe more bardic. <laughs> Well, he's like, aside from the Red Army stint, I think he generally comes across to most people in the historical record as kind of a weenie. (laughs) So he might not be, you know, the buffest of dudes. He's not eating raw meat and getting buff. No, no. Uh, All right. What do you think that Papa Marks would be? (sighs) Papa Marks, man. Are we just going to have a house full of bards? Like... (laughs) <laughs> he wrote a really good book and then wrote more good books you know he inspired a lot of people that's true Still does that's true you know but he's he's kind of intelligence and stuff based i mean like he's re- doing mm-hmm. a lot of research and reading a lot of nerdy like economics tomes but it's a lot of common sense so a lot of wisdom too you know kropotkin gives me druid vibes Ooh, because he's just like We'll just go out there into the fields and it'll work. Trust me. Yeah. I will, yeah. I'll cast that one thing that like stuff grows. It's fine. <laughs> He's going to cast Goodberry, which is the best <laughs> yeah. name of a spell ever. Everyone. Yeah. He's just instead of oh. universal health care, we have universal Goodberry. <laughs> Everybody gets it as a, as a cantrip. It's just a nice GM that gives you that spell. And there that's you go. like four HP right there. <laughs> I like Kropotkin as Druid. Yeah. Mark's probably honestly a bard. Engels is like, Engels uh, is almost like bardier than Mark's. I don't know. He's like, he's such a. Like, he's more charismatic. Yeah. He's, he's such a like fancy boy too. Like, you yeah. Know? Yeah. Even like his contemporaries are like, the dude knew how to have a good time. Like, like he, was, he had drip. He had yeah. riz. Like he had it. Uh, that by the way, Oxford English Dictionary's word of the year. Is riz? Is riz. <laughs> how do you spell it? R is easy. That's what I thought. Okay, good Riz. to know. Yeah. And so I got to learn the origin of Riz, or at least the popu- the origin of the popularization of Riz, mm. of that apparently um, Tom Holland, I think the, the Spider-Man yeah, yeah. guy, he was like, I have no Riz whatsoever or something. He said <laughs> some in an interview and, it, you know, everybody was like posting it and then they were like, what is Riz? So that's, amazing. that's apparently where it got its jump start. But Wow. But yeah, Riz... Uh, Engels had it. Let's let's be Engels honest. Engels had Riz. Like, all right. So he's the bard. What is Marx? Then you think more of a nerd, more of a what wizard? I guess. 
No, okay. So he can't be a wizard because wizards. Now, Marx did study. He studied a lot, but I feel like wizards are better at deadlines than, say, sorcerers. <laughs> sorcerers are like, I'll get there when I get there. <laughs> yeah. I feel like my man, Marx, casting out of charisma, a sorcerer. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. he he ha- he's he's very smart. Don't get me wrong. And most most sorcerers, you know, have this sort of intelligence about them. But like, what they're really, they're just like, they're just like, it's from it. the gut. Yeah, and you know, you can't open your treatise with a specter is haunting Europe. It's the specter <laughs> of communism, unless you have that natural flow that mm-hmm. some egg-headed wizard is never going to actually, you know, get pen to paper on. And I didn't realize sorcerers were charisma based. I gotta, I might roll a sorcerer next time. Oh yeah, sorcerers, great party face, great like natural talent sort of character. Yeah. You know, just skating by. Love that. Yeah. So Marx, I feel like fits for me more of a sorcerer type. I'm into it. He's so I'm bohemian. Okay you know, he's like he is very bohemian. Yes, he would look great in a robe. Yeah, floppy hat. <laughs> <laughs> just woke up. Shows up. But it, he looks so put together, like, damn, he had the bedhead chic going on. <laughs> He's like, yeah, I do. He probably just grew the beard because he was, like, holed up reading for a while. <laughs> yeah, walks out <laughs> and people are like, whoa, nice beard. And he's like, what? Oh, oh, okay. Guess I was in there longer than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> really had to get the nuances of what Adam Smith was talking about. <laughs> that is something that I think is funny about most people's introduction to kind of right-wing opposition to and just tearing down of socialist ideas and, and communist ideas and stuff like that is you're a silly, you're a silly leftist. You should go read mm-hmm. some economics. And <laughs> it's just like my brother in Christ. That's how leftism happened is people yeah, like we went all read and that. read economics. <laughs> like the We're guy, like, this that, is bad. The guy we think like figured stuff out. A lot better than, you know, like Marx and so, you know, he, when, when he, he did that by like studying you guys and saying, what mm-hmm. the fuck is wrong with these people? <laughs> someone did that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Someone already did the work. I don't have to redo that. Yeah. No one wants to read Adam Smith. It's not interesting stuff. It's not like the, he's not like at least horrible. He's not usually like you should enslave everyone or, you know, he, <laughs> but still it's not like, damn, like groundbreaking, you know? Yeah. Che Guevara, maybe like, a, uh, you think a rogue? Or? I was thinking rogue too. Some roguish charm there. Yeah. And plus like great at guerrilla fighting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But still, I mean, like he probably multiclassed a little bit. I feel like most communists multiclass a little bit into bard sort of stuff. Yes. They got to be inspirational. Yeah. Or just have a high charisma score for no reason. <laughs> just that's yeah, something you I do. You can do that with rogues. That's a thing. Who else do you want to stat? Uh, um, I mean, what about Lennon? He's so he's so mysterious. Lenny, I mean, see, Lenny's he's got it more together. I mean, like he's almost in wizard territory of that. Like he seriously was a book club guy, even when the revolution pops off. He's not leading armies or anything. He's old by that point, you know. He famously spent so much time in, in like London's library and everything. Like when he was in exile, like writing, he was writing stuff all the time and academic mm-hmm. petty arguments with people. That's true. That's very wizard. That's wizard energy right there. Okay. Okay. And yeah, I mean like he was pretty, you know, he was good at addressing crowds and stuff and writing to people, but he wasn't like 
That wasn't his thing. Yeah, you know. He was he was a good figurehead, like a good like leader of the revolution, and, and people loved to put him on propaganda and everything else, but he wasn't just like out there leading huge teeming masses into uh, to bid, you know, to do his bidding. Yeah, there's something about him that gives me like paladin or warlock vibes, just from like the passion that he has and like the the commitment. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. A like he took an of, oath of some sort. <laughs> an oath of the working class, like you know. Mm-hmm. Nah, okay, he's he'd be a cool warlock in the sense that, like, so remember his backstory: his brother gets executed. Oh yeah, and so that's when he, makes he a like, deal. yeah, he answers the pact, you know, the, with the, <laughs> sells the soul to the god of the proletariat. I mean, I kind of like that. And says, "All right, here we go." And then from then on, spit and fire, like a hundred percent. And then I think Stalin maybe is more paladin then because he's like. I don't know. Like he he can kick some ass for sure. Yeah, and he's righteous in that sort of like sometimes controversial way of like, mm-hmm. like fuck you. No, this is what I'm doing. Like, and then it's like uh, you know people will be like that sucked. Like my family got purged or something. <laughs> Shouldn't have crossed my god. But then other people will be like, okay, you know, yeah, they did. They 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 got sent off to labor camp. However, the Nazis <laughs> were defeated. So there's that. Mm-hmm. Some trade-offs. And, you know, very much a paladin of, like, ends and means sort of conflict. Okay. I like that. Fidel is 100% bard. He, oh, he was he? he? was a lawyer, for Christ's sake. Like, Oh, yeah, that's just modern-day bard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he was a bard, like, who had to put some points into combat whenever they did the revolution, but otherwise, he's just a bard. This is a pretty fucked-up party. He could do... <laughs> uh castro could famously do like four hour speeches and stuff like one Holy million shit. percent bard <laughs> okay yeah yeah that's that's some bard shit but like not boring as, speeches. as someone who plays a bard yes like, that's some bard ass shit <laughs> <laughs> yeah no like like speeches where you're like like holy shit he is spitting Keep fire going. the whole time yeah you know uh, good uh, shit but yeah this is not a good party i don't think so we yeah have, the composition is weird we have some folk we have sorcerer paladin Warlock. Warlock. We don't have just like rope. a pure fighter. Yeah, we don't have a frontliner. The paladin yeah, will have the to paladin's be the paladin's got to take all the hits. Like, that's it. Everyone else is going to die immediately because it's like three bards and just casters. Like, that's, that's a <laughs> and shit makeup. Trying to one stab rogue. people in the back. <laughs> Sneaking around like, oh. oh okay, hey, however, Stalin, we didn't say before. What did we say for him? We said paladin earlier. Oh, yeah, yeah. He could paladin. just be fighter. I'm okay with that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, th- I think the Paladin thing thematically works pretty well for him. We don't have anyone who's eating raw meat and getting buff. Like, people are talking about it sometimes, but... <laughs> people are like, everyone should definitely do that. Oh, here we go, here we go. We're going we're gonna to bear animal shape Kropotkin. Mm, wild he's shape. Gonna, yeah, he's going to wild shape into he's bear wild shape. and just fuck everyone up on the front line. That's Love the that. Love that. What does Mao do? Oh, Mao... Mal's a bard in the inspirational sense that man was mm-hmm. always in touch and like always more with the people than his party. I think that's a folk hero background. That is. That's right. He was 100%. So he was leading some armies too. He was leading some armies. He was, however, very, you know, kind of secretive, like guerrilla warfare mm-hmm. stuff in terms of what they were doing. So kind of roguish. What about a ranger? Because he, he moved around a lot. 
swam amongst, you know, swam like a fish among the masses. Mm-hmm. And like he, he did all those fucking treks and shit. That's pretty rangery. The long march. Yeah. Like that's what rangers do for fun. Yeah. His wasn't for fun, but he did it. <laughs> yeah. His was escape. <laughs> kind of revolutionary treachery, but yeah, that's pretty good. I would say ranger. I like it. Okay. Okay. Listeners, let us know your, your lineup. Yeah. <laughs> Stupid. And give us other people too. You know, there's, there's yeah, yeah. so many in our pantheon of cool motherfuckers that we can just, you know, add them all in, do a cool drawing someday. Oh, with all of them sick. as D and D characters, <laughs> so stupid. It's like uh, so. You remember we went to the Ren Fair and like the lady had like all the cool maps. Yeah, what if you yeah. had that, but like all the cool communists drawn as oh my fantasy God. characters. But then in different genres too, you know, like oh, oh here's yeah. space linen, <laughs> like <laughs> space linen. He's like Han Solo. Oh. He's, Never yes, tell me the odds. Like you know. Metal gun arms or something. <laughs> in a, yeah, he's in a Gundam. Like, Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Or, yeah, they all come together to be like a Voltron situation. Yeah. It's really dumb. Like, Che Guevara is like, you know, blowing smoke from a space pistol or his laser <laughs> pistol. And it's like, see you, space comrade. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so dumb. Oh. Uh, that's what, that's the uh, great ideas you tune in to hear. Yeah, man. You're welcome. Communism. Send in the fan art, please, please. <laughs> oh, I, yeah. I don't think I have the, the, the style for this, so somebody else do it. Here's the thing. We know you guys have already created a lot of this. Like, we, we know what goes on in your heads the same as ours. <laughs> we all spend most of our days fantasizing, so just share it. It's great. You're in a like-minded community. Yeah. What's going on? What is going on indeed? Uh, that's what the Wall Street Journal wants to know. Oh, good. They had an article a little ways back. It was like, I think it was over Thanksgiving or sometime that weekend or something. And I ended up just taking a screenshot on my phone. I was like, I, I should revisit this later. This is stupid. <laughs> okay. It was just a little alert that came across. Why everyone is so miserable at work right now. <laughs> is it because it's work and it's a job and, <laughs> it's, like, and it's inherently bad? My man, they they have to pay you to be there. <laughs> like, yes. And even then, a lot of us are going to do a shitty fucking job. <laughs> yeah. We're all looking for ways to not do as much as we have to or expected to do, you know? Yep. So they're like, you know, why is everyone so unhappy at work right now? It's <laughs> so weird. It's like, that's the nature of it at all. <laughs> like, okay. Some scenarios. You either have a shitty job and it's shitty for all the reasons jobs can be shitty. Mm -hmm. You have a decent enough job, but like it's still a job. And so therefore it's shitty. Yeah. It's shitty. And only some of the ways that jobs can be shitty. Yeah. <laughs> Add on top of that, the inherent shittiness of all labor under capitalism, which is like, Hey, I'm being exploited every day. So that's, that's just like a baseline exploitation to bad. where even if it's like, this is something I like to do now, someone is ripping me off to do it. At least I like the stuff that I do, but someone's ripping me off while I do it. Yes. <laughs> and then there's the, yeah, the at the level of I like my job. Yeah, people are ripping me off. But like, I feel like we could do a whole series of interviews. Like, I think we could interview someone from like literally every profession on earth and be like, how does capitalism fuck up your job? Yeah. And they'd be like, oh, let me count the ways. 
Yeah, because even if, and like I have encountered this in my personal life, where this person loves their job so much and like is really good at it and all this stuff, and they were forced to make a decision that they knew was bad and was hurting like the people they work with, but like they had to do it because money. Mm -hmm. And like this person tore themselves up about it and like felt really shitty. And I was like, my dude, like this is just what happens here. Like you're going to reach a point where you have to do this shit and no one likes it, doesn't feel good, but like there's not there's not a nice way to do this, you yeah. know, like you can, you can, even if you try to be as nice as possible all the fucking time, you're going to screw somebody over for money. Like that's how it works. Yep. You have to, in some way, debase yourself or, you know, debase the job you're in or, uh, cut corners or hurt people or do something I think that's pretty universal at every job to very, uh, differing degrees. Like you said, the Wall Street Journal was looking at this and saying... Yeah, what was their answer? Uh, <laughs> More vending machines. Well, I like at first they just take some L's. They're like, you know, uh, uh, everyone hates... Uh, everyone seems to hate where they work, uh, despite, however, that we're being really good people here. We're good capitalists here. Despite wage increases, more paid time off, and greater control over where they work, like working from home and shit. The number of U.S. workers who say they are angry, stressed, and disengaged is climbing, according to Gallup's 2023 Workplace Report. Who is getting those things? Like, only, like, a select number of white-collar people? Is that what this article is about? The white-collar people, for sure, are getting the work-from-home situation. Most people aren't. You don't have to be just white-collar to be seeing wage increases. For example, if you were on the winning end of the recent auto mm-hmm. worker strike, you got wage increases and stuff. Hell you know? yeah, you did. But you had to fight for those. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's not 100% them, but yeah, like it's a question of, uh, it's not people working three jobs that are getting these benefits, you know? So it's in interviews with workers around the country, it's clear the unhappiness is part of a rethinking of work life that began in 2020. Hmm, weird. <laughs> the sources of workers' discontent range from inflation, which is erasing much of recent pay gains, to the still unsettled nature of the workday. People chafe against being micromanaged back to offices, but they also find isolating aspects of hybrid and remote work. A cooling job market, especially in white-collar roles, is leaving many professionals feeling stuck. Uh, and yeah, so essentially they're kind of like, what was the big, like, you know, why? Like, <laughs> why did this all happen? Why are people questioning the very nature of, like, you get to tell me where I get to go to work? That sort of thing. I mean, I think a lot of people, myself included, woke up in 2020 and like what happens when you go from working in office to working from home is you realize, I mean, depending on your job, you realize how much of it was bullshit Mm -hmm. and how fast you can do it when you are not hampered by bullshit and forced to socialize with people you don't have anything in common with and like all this crap, like you just don't have to set aside time for that you don't have to look busy you don't have to do any of that shit yeah you had a brief reprieve where you didn't have to do all that stuff and guess what everything still happened yeah it was fine yeah like i still get my work done i have done a great job but like i do it in like four hours (laughs) that i can do other shit yeah it's crazy (sighs) because that that experience was not universal so like teaching what we found out with that with that was like that does not work. <laughs> no, not at all. 
Um, and so we found out even when we came back in like a kind of a weird trying to do more digital stuff, it was like some of that doesn't work either. Like there's a little bit of paper pencil stuff that has to happen sort of thing. So we, you know, we learned a very different lesson um, from that, that I think that most, you know, office type white collar type workers learned, you know, cause that was like very much, Oh, I'm actually being more productive and, not having to check stupid boxes and attend stupid meetings and do these various office space rituals yes that everyone has to you know partake in it's like the the article kind of talks about that too they they talk about this this person Lindsay Leesman who worked in a philanthropy job uh she said pre-pandemic she would have been happy to work 3 days a week at home it would have been a dream come true but Recently, they transitioned from full remote to this hybrid two days a week in the office thing. Uh, and says, so still, her team's in-office requirements seemed like going backward and made her feel that her professionalism and work quality were in doubt. Instead of collaborating more, she and others rarely left their desks except for meetings or lunch, she said. Negative feelings followed her home on her hour-long commute, leaving her short-tempered with her kids. Like, why? Like, I literally got all this <laughs> stuff done without being here. I don't think this is adding anything to it, you know? Yeah, no, it, it is definitely a micromanagement thing. It's definitely a weird real estate play, too. Like, people have invested so much in offices and they feel bad about losing that. Mm-hmm. It's not, so it's not just, like, losing it in terms of, like, well, we're already paying for it, so we need to use it. We need to look at, and I don't know if anyone's really reporting this yet, but how many of the office spaces that people are forcing workers to come back to are going to be up for sale in the short term? So what I mean is you're renting out this office space or whatever, or you're, you've, you leased it and something. If there's some sort of turnaround that you're responsible for, I don't really know the structure of this. Like maybe it's up yeah, to the property know. manager or something. It's not you. But it's like, how much of it is a gambit of like, no, you have to keep the property value of this like high. So you need to get your workers in here so that you can turn around and sell it to some chump. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how that works. I'm super curious. And I'm sure it already like has had effects like real estate wise. I don't know a lot or really anything about commercial real estate. So like, I don't know how it works, but I'm really curious, like how that affected the market. Yeah, if you end up owning your building, I think it's more of a crucial thing of like, no, we need to make this a moneymaker so we can sell it. Mm-hmm. But if you're a tenant, maybe it's not such a big factor, but still. There, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of this real estate angle to it as well of like, oh, we have to make use of this and we don't want derelict buildings and everything else. But then, you know, it's like, why? Uh, so <laughs> that we can make everyone drive more, you know, the, an hour long commute um, and everything else. It's destructive and you know oh it's destructive to the planet even though people are out there saying oh who even cares about fossil fuels like that's not (laughs) not even backed up by the science or something at the climate thing they were saying that that was happening at the climate thing the i think the president of the the qatari guy that put it together oh my god because it was in qatar of course the great a great place for that yeah (laughs) said like there's not even any science that we should phase out fossil fuels or something to that effect that's so fucking funny because I listened to a story on NPR about it 
and they didn't even mention that they were talking about the mostly uae but they're it was like the same sentences over and over of like they're trying to find ways to move away from oil but a lot of them are dependent on oil and (laughs) it was just like they're not going to they're not going to like why are you still thinking that they're going to (laughs) it it was insane oh it's it's this um this liberal idea of yeah like they'll do the right thing yeah like they'll just convince people divorced of their material interests to do something it's so naive like i was just like i'm i can't believe this story made it to air without like a critical voice being like do you really like you really just are gonna keep saying like hmm they really should do that Like, that's insane. No, just, make, uh, yeah, make everyone, like, nice and self-destructive, like. It's this blind faith that I I find really just disturbing. Like, these people, not these specific people, but, like, people knew that cigarettes were bad for you way before, like, the science was, was there for it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that was, they're going to keep doing it. They have no reason not to. Yeah. And... I think this is a point in the in the debate of like, okay, okay, when you're looking at liberals, are they like intentionally trying to lose, or are they just like continuously struggling and 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 still losing? Like, you know, are they? I think some of them see like a sense of righteousness in that. Yeah, of like, uh, it's only pure, right? If we convince people like like that's that's the heroic thing to do is convincing people to do despite what's good for you or your group or whatever you have to take the brave stand like mm-hmm. that i th- you know is is one element of the ideology but the the flip side of that is the fear of giving people the power to just solve their problems yes it is always looking for a big daddy character of, well, these these presidents will work it out at this big climate summit or, you know, these CEOs will have a fucking come to Jesus moment and, and get it together. Like they're always looking for big man in charge to take yeah. care of it and not trusting people. It's really what it comes down yeah. to. They don't trust everyday people because they are so ensconced in, in academia and in, in, in like what they what they consider to be a moral and, and academic high ground. Yeah. And I would say to extend that academia metaphor, I think to the old school version of academia, it's a theological point. Like mm. this is like a monastery sort of view of like, we need God. We need the enlightened voice. We need yeah, someone to come with the mysteries of how to be good despite your material interest. I mean, it goes to the great man theory of history, yeah. too, of like, that's how we're taught things is like big man came up with X, Y, Z ideas. Like, <laughs> I, I was scrolling through the great courses thing uh, on my TV. And one of them was like, the history of was it government? I don't remember what it was. <laughs> it, it was like, it was like the history of democracy or something, but uh-huh. like the, the intro, like I couldn't get past just like the log line. I didn't even click in because the intro was like democracy, freedom, rights. Like <laughs> these are the things. And I was like, what the fuck are y'all talking? <laughs> like someone just came up with the idea of freedom. Like that's what, what people had, want you to think. What if we had freedom? Like 
You guys ever thought that, about that? <laughs> like you would have had to have not freedom first. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's just so it's weird that we think of like the Enlightenment as a time when everyone came up with those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it wasn't like a like a rediscovery mm-hmm. or repopularization, I guess, of previous notions. I mean, this is a tangent, but that's what we're here for. <laughs> I was reading this like Tumblr post about like how kids at recess will often kind of recreate like what primitive humans do. Like they'll like make, they'll find clay in the dirt and make shit out of it. Or they'll like, you know, I used to do this is they'll like figure out that you can write on stuff with certain kinds of rocks. Mm-hmm. And so, like, they fucking are making, like, cave drawings and shit. (laughs) It's just, like, such a beautiful little microcosm of, like, this is, like, a, this is what brains did back in the day, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? So, I I just, I think there is a universality among us. I think that's what we're trying to get to that, that liberals are very uncomfortable with. Oh, yeah, they're super afraid of that. And they, yeah, I think up against that, they put the wise person who is going to adjudicate fairly always a moses always a jesus yeah there's got to be someone who is going to you know cast off their material conditions and say no i'm going to be good for the people but the like the flip side of that is i think the fear of just empowering the people to help themselves like that because that's a a big thing with liberals too for all their oh democracy and all this it's to a point they're definitely drawing the line this side of a people's democracy, this side of just the masses being able to, you know, that's why they want to draw up, oh, rule of law and constitutionality and everything possible to gum up the works of people being able to take government in their own hands and do things with it. They want to slow it down and say, oh, let's check it past the institutions, past the Supreme Court mm-hmm. and past the Congress and the Senate and everybody else, you know, you want to make sure that it's legal and you pass all the hurdles of our bourgeois democracy. If it's okay by that, those standards, then it's okay, but you can't go too far. You know, do you think liberalism because it invests so much time in, in gumming up the works and, and just putting barriers between the people in power, do you think that inherently creates a population like it's like a feedback loop of like, well, the people don't know enough. They they aren't being educated because like our education system sucks, and like you know they they don't understand these complex systems of governance or whatever it is. Like they, it's like a reinforced system of like, see, the people couldn't do it. They're too fucking stupid. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> they couldn't figure out a business. They've never been given the chance to. <laughs> that, yeah, doesn't work. Like, that we made not work. <laughs> they can't figure that out. How to make it work in their favor? So obviously, yeah, they're. They're dumb and, you know, and and it makes people lose faith in, in the system and then therefore be more likely in their eyes to leave it up to an expert. Like, just, just let us do it. Like it's don't bother with it anymore. There's something on one of the recent tribulus that I kind of resonated with of like, yeah, the original idea of liberalism as in opposition to monarchical power and stuff of like, oh, you know, that, that sort of thing is in a lot of ways kind of the uh, initial kind of fertile ground out of which sprung leftism. Like we, yeah. we came from yeah. that step in the right direction. We extended it to, <laughs> yeah, to its logical conclusion and stuff. But like the, the new versions of that, to try to resurrect that and say, Oh, this is the best we can do. 
it's kind of like, you know, I like to cite him on the show, Kropotkin saying, um, you know, I hope that, or I think it was Proudhon that said, uh, ho- hopefully future generations will execute me as a reactionary. <laughs> as liberals are now reactionaries. Like that, that's oh, there. For sure. They want a step back, whereas we want steps forward, you know, and maybe in the future we're going to be the reactionaries, but that's what we're talking about is nowadays liberals are holding us back, whereas before maybe they were helping us forward out of the days of despotism. I mean, just generationally, that's true. Mm-hmm. I know we were talking about an article, but I have one more thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's just keep going. Anyway. I agree. Um, There's not much more to this. It was just like, I thought it was stupid. It was like, oh, gee, why is everybody mad about coming back to <laughs> what? work? You know? It's so weird. <laughs> Ugh. I also, people who like depend on work for their friendships are usually not cool people. <laughs> I'm like barely <laughs> friends with anyone. No, I'm like, work. you don't need to know me. I'm like a fucking secret agent. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, no judgment if you have work besties. I used to have a work bestie. It was fine. But I was also like unhealthily enmeshed in my work at that time. Like to me that that is a pattern it can often create is like, oh, you don't know how to step away and like create a separate space for yourself. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, not always the case. Not We're not here to make broad judgments. Oh, yeah. Okay. The Grinch, though. <laughs> the, you were talking about... Of course, yeah, about, the Grinch. This obviously ties in. You were talking about liberals expecting people to change their minds. Mm-hmm. And in the original, like, 1960s animated version of The Grinch, that is literally what happens. Like, my man goes goes through this whole process of, of making the costume, making the costume for his dog, going down, stealing shit to a cool theme song, goes up yeah. to the top of the mountain, and then gets sad and feels bad about it. Yeah, he's like, fuck all of these people. They suck. I'm going to ruin their day. What? He hears them singing, right? He hears them singing the because yeah, they still have they, yeah, the Yahudore. They still have Christmas spirit, and then his heart goes three sizes, and he saves the presents. Game without packages, boxes, or bags. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, revolutionary nineteen nine early two thousands version with Jim Carrey. Uh-huh. They go into the Grinch's backstory and show that like he actually was done harm materially. He was kicked out of Whoville, not given access to community, and that's why he became evil. Mm. So he wasn't just naturally a subhuman green guy. I don't think they ever gave any backstory in the original. <laughs> I think it was just like there's this mean old man who lives on the mountain. Yeah, he's green also. <laughs> he's green, he's different, whatever. And this one, they're like, oh, this is the reason is he was ostracized. Yeah. Okay. I'm just saying. So they tried to plant more more material. There's material reasons. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. I don't remember enough about the ending of that version. I'm pretty sure it's exactly the same. So whatever. Probably. But okay, no, because he also falls in love with that hot who, I don't remember her name, but she's very attractive. And so, like, materially, he's more invested in the community because he's like, I get to hang out with this hot lady. Wasn't that, like, the mayor's wife or something? The mayor's wife, yeah. yeah. Well, fair enough. I mean, not the women are material, but you know what I'm saying. He's invested. No, but he forms a human relationship, and he wants Mm -hmm. to pursue that. And he's like, I think it'd be better for me if I came over to this side. Rather than just a purely ideological, oh, maybe they're right. Mm-hmm, Which I feel mm-hmm. bad. I feel like, you know, people do like to do a, it's a kind of a Western thing that we subconsciously a lot of times do of, of like this division of, uh, this division of material stuff versus 
body-mind dichotomy is what I'm trying to talk about. Mm. Like, oh, I feel bad is like one thing versus like my material. Like the feeling is a material thing of like having that's to true. feel bad in the sense. But like just the the ideas or whatever. Oh, that's right. This is wrong. I don't know. I guess what I would say in the original, though, his circumstances don't really change if he keeps the press. Like, he's like, well, the village already hated me. Like, he, he grows empathy, I guess. Yeah. And he doesn't, I think they have like a meal together or something. At the end, yeah. He cuts the roast beast. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I don't know if he's like, if they're like, cool, come back next year or like, now you can live with us or anything like that. It seems friendly. Like he's able to pat little Cindy Lou Who on the head and everything. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, the Grinch. Um, so yeah, the Grinch. <laughs> good communist uh, storytelling <laughs> no. device there. I mean, not really, but whatever. I mean, okay, he is, he doesn't like the consumerist culture. Who does? I mean, these days the economy is even turning on some of its own. Some of the most esteemed members, hedge, hedge of our guys, capitalist economy. Not not that esteemed. I mean, but <laughs> I feel like they're not esteemed. They just are doing well. Like those guys are. Yeah, not, no one likes them. No one like. Oh, little Johnny, you should be a hedge fund manager. <laughs> you know, it's just not encouraged. Like no, you know, they're sleazy. Yeah, there's so much media that's like, yeah, we know this is what bad guys do. Yeah. But we, like, still let it happen. Isn't that weird that we've culturally decided, like, that's nasty. But if you do it, you get to, like, have a lot of cool shit. <laughs> but we kind of hate it. <laughs> yeah. No, th- this is an article in the Times. Just a couple days before recording, why doctors and pharmacists are in revolt. Ooh, okay. So we're going to have a People's Republic of... Doctors. Doctors? I want to live there. They're going to take care of me. (laughs) Yeah, I thought that was just called Cuba. Uh, (laughs) They do make the most doctors. (laughs) This is essentially just about the proletarianization of the healthcare profession. Hmm. What is, what, how? Dr. John Woos does not come across as a labor agitator. A longtime obstetrician gynecologist from Louisiana With a penchant for bow ties, Dr. Woost spent the first 15 years of his career as a partner in a small business, that is, running his own practice with colleagues. After he took a position at Alina Health, a large nonprofit healthcare system based in Minnesota in 2009, he did not see himself as the kind of employee who might benefit from collective bargaining. But that changed in the months leading up to the march, when his group of more than 100 doctors and an Alina hospital near Minneapolis voted to unionize. Hell yeah. Dr. Woost, who's spoken with colleagues about the potential benefits of a union, said doctors were at a loss on how to ease their unsustainable workload because they had less input at the hospital than ever before. The union that represents them, the Doctors' Council of the Service Employees International Union. First of all, the Doctors' Council. Sounds cool. That's a cool name for it. No, that's the death panels, right? Oh, uh, yeah, <laughs> finally, we're getting the death panels. Yeah. Uh, God, just take me out. I've been waiting since <laughs> 2009 for this or something. There's doctors from dozens of facilities around the country have inquired about organizing over the past few years. Not just them, but healthcare workers, many of them nurses, are on pace and metrics. Yeah. So they're also looking at unionizing this fall, dozens of non union pharmacists at CVS and Walgreens stores called in sick or walked off the job to protest understaffing. So there's labor agitation there as well. 
In the doctor's case, I thought it was interesting. He said they're being asked to do more as staffing dwindles, leading to exhaustion and anxiety about putting patients at risk. Many said they were stretched to the limit after the pandemic began and their work demands never fully subsided. But in each case, the explanation runs deeper. A long-term consolidation of healthcare companies has left workers feeling powerless in big bureaucracies. They say the trend has left them with little room to exercise their professional judgment, i.e. the grinding of the once professional class into the cogs of the machine of being proletarian workers who are just plugged in. The only thing you have to sell us is your labor, not your expertise. That's where they're at. Yeah, yeah. I had heard about the the pharmacy actions. I think NPR did a story about that as well. Um, yeah, they they have it really rough. Just very few increases in pay, often extremely understaffed. Dude, even like, like... I mean, you see it. Yeah, going to the pharmacy, like, yeah. as a... You know, not to be generational necessarily, but like not as a like older Karen type of person, like a like a human who's like having empathy with them. You're like, damn, yeah, they have you to, can tell they have to put up with a lot of shit. <laughs> yes. Yes. Like they're constantly harried. Yeah. And I'm like, it's OK. Take your time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, doctors are they've they've had enough. Anyone who's still managed to make a go of being a doctor in a small private situation, probably not going to be interested in unionizing because they are still the capitalist masters of their domain, even though they're maybe petty bourgeois, but still once you end up in one of these big corporate concerns, then you're like, okay, well I am just doctor number 31. Now my interests, again, it doesn't take, it's not like a touching song that won this guy over. It's a change in his material conditions of, hey, it would be better for me if I banded together with my fellow doctors. Yeah, and like small private practices have almost disappeared. Mm -hmm. GPs as a profession has almost disappeared because it makes way more financial sense for people to become specialists. So it's really hard to build up those relationships as like a family doctor. That's just like not a thing anymore. I mean, it's you can find them, but like it's a lot more rare. Yeah. It's funny because like all of the lies we were told about Obamacare is like hmm. what happens in capitalist healthcare. You know, like you won't be able to choose your doctor. Like, yeah, I I still can't do that. You have to go to your network. <laughs> yeah, like you you know are going to lose coverage for things and all these all these scare tactics, which are actually true for the other system. Just you know? for yeah, quote unquote for regular free market old healthcare. healthcare. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, doctors not having as much you know, choice and freedom and all that stuff. Like, yeah, that's what's happening. They're talking about uh, this new trend in healthcare whose practitioners once enjoyed platinum level social status at high school reunions and Thanksgiving dinners. For many years, doctors and pharmacists believed they stood largely outside the traditional management and labor hierarchy. Now they feel smothered by it. The result is a growing worker consciousness among people who haven't always exhibited one, a sense that they are subordinates constantly at odds with their overseers. There's a quote from Dr. Elias Sharif, a colleague of Dr. Wusta Alina, um, who was heavily involved in the union campaign. She said, I realize at the end of the day that all of us are workers, no matter how elite we're perceived to be. Mm. We're seen as cogs in the wheel. You can be a physician or a factory worker, and you're treated exactly the same way by these large corporations. Yeah, that's some class consciousness right there. I love yeah. it. Love to see it. <laughs> The details vary across healthcare fields, but the trend lines are similar. 
before times in which healthcare professionals say they had the leeway <laughs> and resources to do their jobs properly, followed by what they see as a descent into the ranks of the micromanaged. They talk about um, metrics coming up to them being this big thing. Like, aren't they like rated on like how many patients they can see and everything like in certain time periods? This part of the article is talking about metrics in the sense of pharmacies because you know the, they were talking about the pharmacist being on this as well this particular pharmacy manager basically was talking about uh how the corporation uh would say like put in schedule scheduling limits and say every week that you're over your labor budget you get a call regardless of your prescription volume from your district manager saying like you hot you know you had too many people on payroll for too many hours at your store like you need to be more understaffed basically yeah, even if you're you're swimming in prescriptions to fill. Mm-hmm. So for pharmacists, there's that pressure. For doctors, who was one doctor, Francis Quay, president of the Doctors' Council, uh, said, corporate tells you how to manage your patient. You know, that's not how you're supposed to manage your patient, but you can't say anything because you're scared you're going to be fired. Yep. You know, they're, they're taking these orders um, from above. Primary care doctors are given sentence to talk to patients about their high risk or chronic medical conditions, even if those conditions are well managed or aren't relevant to a visit. Uh, Is that a valuable use of our 25 minutes together? You know, asks a primary care doctor in this, you know, that was pushing for unionization. No, but it means Alina gets more money from Medicare, which is a thing. Uh, Doctors actually like check this off of their list. Like if you go for preventative care or something. And then the doctor asks, hey, do you have any particular concerns you want to discuss? This actually changes it over a category. Oh. Like when they ask that question in your checkup or something, like, are there any things that you wanted to talk about in particular? And that changes it over, like, in terms of, like, coverage category, which, depending on your insurance, is fine or is not. Like, bumps it over into a different payment thing. And oh, that's, that's nasty. just on your end. I don't know what it looks like on their billing end. If, mm-hmm. you know, I've never seen that, but, but it's, it's a, it is a thing. And so you can imagine the corporations are pushing their doctors to behave certain ways on that. Totally. Not totally. out of like looking out for you better, but like for money. So I guess the main story here is the squeeze is spreading like the, the Grinding wheels of capitalism are spreading to even more and more sectors of the economy. Just the the status fall of of doctors and pharmacists, like that's got to be such a hit that, like morale wise, that makes you maybe more likely to to be open to this kind of like class consciousness, maybe. So, but I mean, I think the status fall comes with the being squeezed. Like the reason your status is less like there is because like you're not getting wage increases and you're not you're overworked like you're fucking miserable yeah and you're saying maybe with such a greater loss comes kind of a greater desire for vengeance or desire to set things right of like fuck that like well i guess my question is like i wonder how much squeezing has to happen before more more and more people get on board like is there a certain echelon where it becomes very unlikely like i usually see very little potential in white collar workers, you know, like, like, Mm -hmm. like office kind of folks. Like I just don't, you know, it, it's the complaining I hear is so normalized. And so like, 
that's just the way it is kind of stuff. And we are so often, not always, I mean, like, I, I definitely know people who have had physical ailments from, from office work, but like, for the most part, fairly shielded, mm-hmm. that I wonder what it would take to get people real pissed, you know? Yeah, that's interesting, like, where on the class scale, or the class spectrum, maybe. We we look at what's traditionally thought of when you think of, like, big labor actions in the States, and that's, like, mining. Yeah, that's real fucking dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know, trucking, also very dangerous. Like, these physical jobs. Acting, that is physically using your body and your face in a way, and you have to be really careful. Like, I was watching Star Trek and they didn't have the permission to use one of their actresses in like kind of the montage scenes because she negotiated a contract that was like, no, you can't use my image anymore because you shut me out of the show and fired me in a really shitty way. Mm-hmm. And so she was like a main character for most of the series, but like in the finale, they weren't able to like do flashbacks with her at all. So like, I think actors have a decent labor union for that reason too. So like, it's, it's interesting to me what, what fields are, more likely to jump and more likely to like mobilized. I, I don't know. I mean, I think they all have potential, but I am like excited to see it spreading, obviously. Yeah. So here's to our comrades, the doctors. Yay. You guys are cool. We'll need you. Next time you visit your doctor, just mention, I mean, are you feeling? Have like, you considered unionizing? Yeah. You feel like you're like kind of a cog <laughs> in the machine. You know, I'm just, my appointment is just another box you have to check today. Mm-hmm. Radicalize them or something. Radicalize your doctor. <laughs> Probably going to work. <laughs> Definitely fine. All right. I like to think, just a just a here a big transition here, a big segue. I like to think <laughs> we have a good sibling relationship. I think so. I think we have a better sibling relationship than most people I know. All right. That's 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 good. Aspirational. <laughs> it turns out this is kind of my first learning about it that comrade fidel castro did not have as good of a sibling relationship um with his sister oh oh i didn't even know he had a sister i knew he had a brother yeah, raul right he you know, yeah yeah kind of took over after his death and everything he kind of took over shortly before then and stuff but no but he had a sister he had several siblings six that's a lot siblings wow um, and that's just with that i don't know if he had siblings from the like previous half. wife or something but um his father he was he was one of seven children jeez so many siblings among whom was juanita juanita recently died age 90 and here's an interesting thing about her uh initially in the revolution she was supportive of their efforts to overthrow the brutal dictatorship of Fulgencio Batista. Mm-hmm. And she was like, this guy, he's a fucking asshole, right? Um, let's get rid of him. Just, you know, that was fine. Understandable. And when the revolution was successful, uh, she went out into the countryside um, and helped with the campaign to uh, set up health clinics, to manage social programs, all this stuff initially. Um, however, she soured on the revolutionary project as time went on. What happened? Her own side of the story claims 
that she was disillusioned with the execution of opponents, of which there are very few, the media censorship, anti-religious measures, which was still also not very wholehearted, and the imposition, this is what was like, okay, okay, all right, I do, I do know <laughs> enough about Fidel to know where you get this. The imposition of agrarian reform, a.k.a. land reform, on the Castro family estates. Now, Ooh. we didn't do a bio on Fidel. Oh, we didn't, did we? No, but he was born out of wedlock at his father's farm in 1926. His father, Angel Castro Yarguiz, was a veteran of the Spanish-American War. Oh. Yeah, a migrant to Cuba from Galicia in northwest Spain. He'd become financially successful by growing sugarcane at Las Manacas Farm in Biran. After the collapse of his first marriage, he took his household servant to be a second wife. This is, this is when he had Fidel and his siblings. Baptized him as Roman Catholics, blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, like, he, was, he was like wealthy. I mean, like, he came from land. He was put through college. That's how he ends up being a law student and a lawyer and everything. That's his family background. So when she says, oh, land reform, we're going to take the family's estate. And she doesn't like that. And that proves to be the last straw. That's hilarious. She's like, I wanted to retire there. Yeah. (laughs) That makes her look kind of bad. When Fidel decided to further expropriate the land, Juanita set about selling the cattle. Just like a kulak. I mean, you know, they're they're coming Mm -hmm. for the stuff. We're going to get rid of it. Uh, Fidel flew into a rage and denounced her as a counter-revolutionary worm, a.k.a. Gusano. That's what he said. Yeah. <laughs> For her part, uh, she, she you know claims that he was never really truly a communist, which is a laughable claim because this is Fidel fucking Castro. Yeah, and you're the one trying to hold on to land. Yeah. Nasty capitalist freak. Uh, uh, uh. Um, here's a crazy thing, though. Uh, she becomes a... CIA informant. <gasps> what? Yeah. This is, I had to do a lot of decoding in my original source, and then I did some more reading on her and stuff. It was, it came to light. But the original source was like this article in the Telegraph, this UK magazine or whatever. Um, mm, yeah, I know them. Or a newspaper, I guess. Uh, but like, it's just very like anti-Castro and mm-hmm. anti, you know, so it's like, uh, oh, their humble father <laughs> you know, just oh, he a small was a, farmer a conscript fighting for spain then he was selling <laughs> railroad ties to the united fruit company but then he moved into sugar cane expanded to cattle opened a general mm. store and through various occasionally underhanded deals became okay. one of the largest landowners in the province you know he like basically enslaved people like come on <laughs> underhanded deals <laughs> underhanded <yeah>. deals <laughs> what a way to put that yeah, I mean, if you're running a sugarcane plantation pre-Fidel, like, you're doing some nasty shit. Yeah, not good <laughs> stuff. So she ends up, like, her home becomes this refuge for opponents of the regime. Oh, shit. And she, like, you know, kind of turns on him sort of thing. And she ends up being asked by the Brazilian ambassador, Virginia Leato de Acuna, uh, to meet a CIA agent. Hmm. <gasps> a rotten dog by the name of Tony Sforza. And so they arrange a rendezvous in Mexico City in 1961, where she agrees to become Donna as her code name, learning to conceal documents in cans of food and set up a code system 
using a clandestine radio and two tunes, Marchetti's Fascination Waltz and the op- opening of Madame Butterfly. So I, I don't know what, like, each one means something like, I'm good or I've been killed. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> like, mm, I wish I knew more about those pieces to, like, infer something about that. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, yeah, she does that for a while. And then eventually when her mom dies, she goes into exile with the help. The article says with the help of Raul, who basically was like, oh, like, I don't I don't hate you. Like, you're, you know, soft spot for a sister sort of thing. He's like, OK, it's fine. Like, I'll let you travel to Mexico and then you can defect or something along those lines. Um, turned a blind eye to it is how they say. Even her chauffeur remarked on her hardly inconspicuous luggage of 11, though some say 21 bags. <laughs> so ever so the capitalist upon leaving way. Ever. Yeah, geez. That's pretty bad. I promise if you ever pull off a revolution, I will not be mad if you try to sell the family home to the people. <laughs> uh, I will not abscond with... Uh, I don't know. I have a lot of clothes and books, so I might have 11 bags, but I will not do 21. 21's a, a 10 That's bags too far. Too far. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, she sucked in some ways. Spoke at a rally at the Tokyo Convention of the World Anti-Communist League in 1970. Like, this league should be burned to the ground. Mm. It still exists. Like, ew. Yeah, not a good look. No. So I just didn't know this whole thing about, you know, she was working with the CIA. She claimed that, oh, she would not, uh, she wouldn't involve herself in any of the numerous CIA attempts to assassinate her brother. I mean, at least there's that, but that's a pretty low bar. Yeah, that's. Did not assassinate brother. Good job. I would expect if you (laughs) turned on me for the CIA that you would at least have the decency not to help them try to assassinate me. Yeah, but who knows? And vice I mean, versa. I would, if I, you know, found myself the, all of a sudden, an imperial slapdog, I would not help Dave and Dan take you down. I do have a lot of shit, and I've got a lot of Le Creuset I might want to take with me. So, <laughs> yeah. That's, okay. I would have a lot of bags. But she eventually ditched the CIA. For whomst? For no one. Oh, just to be a, a hermit? In the Nixon era... Basically, the CIA got too soft for her. Said As it became apparent that the underground fight against Castro was having a nev- negative impact on U.S.-Soviet relations, the CIA asked Juanita to start issuing statements that communism was no longer a threat in Latin America. She felt betrayed and refusing to compromise cut ties with the agency. Okay, I'm surprised she didn't try to assassinate him because it sounds like she was pretty diehard at this point. Yeah, what the fuck? Like... She's so weird. She ended up running a pharmacy, like definitely would not have been okay with her pharmacy unionizing. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Uh, and so, yeah, that's the sad, stupid story of Juanita Castro, the lesser known and way less cool yeah, she Castro sucks. sibling. Oh, man. She was living on that sugarcane lifestyle, was not ready to give it up. Yeah, no, she was... Uh, One of the many people who say, no, Castro stole my family farm. (laughs) It was the the Castro family farm (laughs) and it was a plantation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's just a good nugget to know in general for when people complain about that. Like my man 
reappropriated his own fucking farm. Yeah, that's also cool <laughs> that's as sick. fuck. Is him saying like, no, this is bullshit. <laughs> I lived there. That's how I'm here today. But it should never have happened. Mm-hmm. Like just, you know, negating that. I think that's a that's, that's a a really like that's a strong underpinning of our of of the reactionary like current of America is this uh, of any imperial country is this like that's how we got here me personally i got here via this mass dispossession of native americans or slavery and it's like you know going back in time i wouldn't have done it but it is how like my family got here like every lots of people have these stories and so many people have this reactionary like tie to it that they can't just put themselves off and say, like Castro said, like, yeah, it is how I got here. Fuck that. Yeah, there is a real hesitancy to to ditch that part of not ditch it in the hiding way, but to renounce it. Like yeah. I had to like awkwardly try to explain to someone the other day why, like, yeah, the American flag is cringe now. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I can't believe I'm having to do this, but yeah, it's been bad for like a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just it's a, it's a weird thing we have to combat, I guess. In the U.S., I think, you know, the British, any, you know, Im- imperialist country has to deal with this of, like, its legacy, what it did, and people not being willing to let go of that. For family reasons, for whatever reasons, I don't know. I think there is a sense of embarrassment, and, and I think people often can choose two paths of embarrassment, which is to like acknowledge it and move on kind of thing or like double down. And I, I think the reactionary movement of like, I didn't do anything wrong. It's not me personally that did that. Like that's very tempting to just absolve yourself of that <laughs> and, the, uh, and talk it away. The middle school or high schooler strategy of just gaslight the teacher. <laughs> that about never happened. Did. Yeah. <laughs> No, you watched me do not that. I didn't do that, obviously. Yeah. I mean, that's the South's tack with like some slaves were happy and like that kind of bullshit. (laughs) Like there's definitely, yeah, lots of misinformation. But yeah, there there is a real, we've been fed such romanticized versions of our past that it's really hard for people to give that up even when they know like there's mountains of evidence about it. There is still this sense of like, yeah, but we're cool now. And it's like, well, first off, <laughs> we're not cool now. Secondly, that's an unforgivable sin. Like, I can't just like wipe that away. You know, like there's genocide. Like that's, yeah. that's a bad one, guys. We can't just <laughs> pretend that like that's cool. Yeah. you Like to be a good person, you have to look at that and be like, that was bad. And And again, like the idea of... That's just how it is. And every, you know, major country did that. Every major empire did that. It's like, that doesn't mean it's okay either. Like, <laughs> it, come on, guys. Like, that that's the classic sucked. if your friends jumped off the cliff. Yeah. <laughs> if all your friends did genocide. <laughs> well, come on, mom. Uh, it's just a little genocide. It's just a couple million here. Yeah, that that's that's the Israeli government telling, telling themselves that every day. Yeah. <laughs> come on. I know we told you all to evacuate to South Gaza, but like God. we want to like attack that now, and we also want to occupy it forever after. We're not really sure when that will ever end. Yeah, yeah, I've been keeping up with that. I, I signed up for this. I, I haven't really fucked with this before, but I signed up like for a, I guess a subscription on Instagram 
from this person that is sharing information about it. And like every day, a couple times a day, they send like kind of the highlights of what's happening. Yeah. Um, and that's been a really useful way for me to keep up because it's bite-sized, but it's also in a specific place. So like, okay, I'm in the headspace for this. Let me go check on it. Mm-hmm. Let me find yeah. the name of that that resource because it's been really helpful for me just to get like concrete information on like, what the fuck is going on? Like, where are we on the ceasefire? Where are we on all this? It's called Let's Talk Palestine. And they have a, a broadcast channel is what it's called. Wow, I'm good at technology. Um, <laughs> so yeah, very useful. Recommend that. Um, and yeah, I've been I've been keeping up with it there, and it is sickening the way they have like corralled people into the south just to like fucking gun them down. And then surprise, surprise. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and like the stories coming out about like the hostage exchange and like how well the Israeli hostages were treated compared to the Palestinian hostages, the ages of the Palestinian hostages being so low, like some people getting arrested at age. Four? What the fuck? Like what? What? Like listen, four-year-olds are annoying as fuck, but I'm not gonna torture them, you know? No, and they even have terminological differences too. Of yes, like, oh, yes. here, men, women. These and are children. minors. Yeah. And these are people under age 18 if they're Palestinian. If you're yeah. brown, you don't get to be a minor. Yeah. Ugh, you don't get to be a, ch- a child. It's horrible. It's kind of a lesser version of the United States version of that, which is uh, that's whenever they declare something a combat zone, which is like a city or a mm-hmm. theater of operations or anything we're targeting through a drone that uh, any, you know, males, they're, they're combat age males are deemed enemy combatants, whether they were or not, they're not civilians. There's no, there's no capacity for someone to be a civilian if they're male and 18 years or older in the targeted ranges of the, of the U S military. And that number has just, or that qualification has just disappeared for like pretty much all about, like everyone is just like, yeah. well, they're all in on it. No, and <laughs> it's you'll insane. Get, you'll get, yeah, you'll get interviews with when you can get interviews with like IDF spokespeople of any, you know, sorts or not just them, Israeli state, any, anyone involved in the so-called state of Israel. Uh, when, when, when you get interviews with them, like, and you, and you can, when you push them and break them down, they will eventually be like, uh, a, a Palestinian kid is a future Hamas. Yeah. Person. Yeah. It's so fucked. And you're just like, at that point, you guys literally are, are telling us the truth from your perspective. When you say you want to exterminate them, you are treating this as a pest problem. Yeah. And it's like, you're being disgusting. honest, you're being evil, but you're being honest. Is that that's how, literally how you see it. And when you're in that situation, you have to treat the state you're dealing with as what it's telling you it is. They're telling you that they're fascists. Yeah, that that's all it is to it. Like the, they're telling you they're racist. They're telling you they're fascist. They're telling you they're totalitarian. They're telling you everything. Like I've seen so many fucking idiots try to bend over backwards, saying that like they're democ, they're only democracy the only, in the Middle East. And that used like, to be what the, the fuck. Are you saying? That used to be the completely one hundred percent widely accepted. Not one hundred percent. There were still smart people back then, but <laughs> that a was very the, the widely accepted talking point about Israel was it's the only democracy in the Middle East. For who was my <laughs> fucking question? For who? Because yeah. I don't think you have democracy if you're getting kicked out of your homes and terrorized like i don't think you can fucking vote and even if you could is that how you're gonna fucking spend your time (laughs) (laughs) yeah Ugh. yeah it's gross um 
I don't know, one thing I'm anxious about now, my new, my new fun global anxiety is I feel like the force and the engagement with with news around Gaza reached its height already. And like people feel like they won with that four day ceasefire that was not honored, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I worry. I worry they're going to get away with this. I worry people are going to lose steam and, and stop caring. You're probably right. I think people to some degree have tapered off. I think when we see the this most recent push into South Gaza, that it's not, it, I mean, it's, it's still front page New York Times stuff, but it's, I don't know if the engagement is there. It's not as, as crisis of a situation in terms of uh, pop the popular story. I still see it. I still see it just about every day, just like on, on social and everything, but I don't think it's as prevalent. It's not like every other story is about that, like the way it was a few weeks ago. And I worry just with like holiday season stuff. Like there was even a weird conspiracy theory. Did you see this? That like Spotify wrapped released a few days early because they like, they wanted to distract from like, from the situation there or something like they're like they always release on this day but they did it a few days early today because i, I can't remember the let me i'm gonna google and we'll see if i can find this because <laughs> it's usually the first week of december and they did it a week early the only thing i found was a tumblr post all right i mean that might have been it what is a tumblr post there spotify wrapped is normally released on november 30th or december 1st this year it was released on November 29th, the International Day of Solidarity with Palestinian People. That's what it was. That's the post I saw. A day which it was asked for people to increase their social media posts about Palestine to help call for a permanent ceasefire. Instead, it's now being overshadowed by people posting about Spotify rap. That's what I saw. Okay. I wonder if that's actually real. That is a Tumblr post. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, listen, I love Tumblr, but you heard it not here first. the most reliable. We're the Tumblr correspondents. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, yeah, I, all I want to say, I, I'm very curious as to how the public eye will maintain focus because it's historically not very good at that. No, it's... <laughs> we got a short memory. Certainly not. And I don't think it's going to be won. The struggle for the independence of the people of Palestine is not going to be won in the court of public opinion. I think it be, can be assisted by that. You know, and... One of the big things that, that brought the apartheid regime of South Africa to the negotiating table eventually, you know, to its demise was the Court of International Opinion. That's one of the reasons why conservatives, reactionaries, and everyone else are so afraid of the BDS movement is mm-hmm. because literally the BDS movement, but for South Africa, was very successful at crippling their state and making them seek concessions with Nelson Mandela and the ANC and everyone else. So it's, it's, it's an important component. But I think that the, the main, the driving force in each instance uh, is the mass organization of people on the ground uh, continuing to bring the fight, putting their bodies on the line. And our job is to be, is to put ours on the line as much as possible too. Uh, you see this in people uh, obstructing factories that are producing weapons and defense systems and various stuff for yep. Israel. Uh, dock workers and stuff refusing to transport. The, uh, people are doing what they can, you know, to that extent. I don't think 
if the main driving force is ever really going to be social media, but it's, you know, it's still a, it's still an awareness thing. It's still a popular pressure thing. It can still do stuff. It's not as yeah. much. It's, it's a secondary at best measure, <laughs> yeah. probably more tertiary. Yeah. And I, I think that's, again, we've talked about this before several, several times on this, this segment of topic, but I struggle with hearing the characterization of of Hamas and of of the resistance movement in general as as just terrorism. And mm-hmm. it's like, man, you just you just don't know, man. You don't know what the fuck they've been through. Yeah. And it's really easy for you to sit here and just say nothing justifies, you know, attacking music festival or whatever. But it does. I mean, like you shouldn't attack <laughs> music festivals, let's be honest, but like you shouldn't be in that situation either. You like yeah. should not have had your country, your country, nation, state-wise, but like just your your homeland, your people, just destroyed, destroyed taken like over, turned into second-class citizens. Whatever happens after that, it's hard to say it's on your hands. Yeah. And so I don't know. Yeah, that's 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 liberal hand-wringing bullshit. Of yeah, it's easy to to again be the big morality man on top of the mountain. When you're comfortable. Yeah, because like, you know, we can, you know, take the other tack and say, okay, well, yes. Does, is that really bad? Does that, is that really a heart wrenching experience for people directly, indirectly, whatever involved in that? Yeah, it is like that sucks. You know, that's, that's, that's awful to go through. Um, and it's very much like the awful violence that was visited upon, uh, American settlers, on the western frontier you know okay you had native americans come in and kidnap people or scout people or kill people or what have you bad stuff but you also had white people coming in you know doing the same shit basically stealing their land raping their women like doing all kinds of horrible fucking shit I, i think we're mature enough to say you know yeah all of those instances of violence against people are bad but you know when <laughs> yeah you know, i too think violence is bad i'm a right, real fucking yeah. hero <laughs> we're, you know, we're, we're very you know revolutionary in that sense i just mean uh, to be a an adult about it and looking at the analysis of it you can zoom out and say while all the violence is bad here is the here's the context yeah, here's that, the context and here's it doesn't have a fucking vacuum right it's just a it's it's a a childish notion just be like, look, they did a bad thing, so they're the bad guys in this conflict, right? It's like it, when like you're who did it last? Yeah, when you're a kid and you get in trouble for like pushing someone, but they pushed me first. It's mm-hmm. like stop, like like here. Well, that's here. what they think that is. They they think that oh well, you know they they did X Y Z to Palestine. Well, like well that you know that doesn't justify this. You know, like that just because they did this first. And it's like I don't know, man. Like that's that's not just one incident it's decades mm-hmm. it's the thing is you have to zoom out and like look at the totality of it you can't get hyper focused on the immediate part and you can't let you know at this point you can't let people bully you into stuff of just like well hey like first before we have this conversation we just condemn hamas and stuff it's just like <laughs> just like literally don't have a conversation with that person like no definitely not just don't like you're wasting no. your time <laughs> It's hard out there, and I don't know. I feel weird about the whole conflict in the sense that, like, I feel like I came late to it. Oh, yeah, me too. Like, I don't know. I wasn't 
I, I didn't understand mo- most of it. Like I kind of just took in kind of common sense of like, oh yeah, there should probably be like a two state solution. And so, I don't know, <laughs> like that sounds nice. That's, that's the, like the nicest version I've heard of stuff, you know, for a long time. I know. Time. Yeah. Th- that sounds simple. Of like, makes sense. Two people don't get along. Just put them in different places. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's a weird one. Again, from the river to the sea. That makes me a terrorist, I think, saying that. Yeah, no, I, I got a DM. Yeah, I got a DM calling me. Uh, I don't remember what they called me, but they, they said, that's actually a terrorist slogan. <laughs> I was yeah. like, you're actually blocked, so eat it, big one. <laughs> I posted another piece of art immediately after they DM'd me. I'm like, I hope this fucker sees this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they should t- uh, they should have tuned into the podcast i said it in arabic so i i have the yes. one up i have the extra terrorist super credential now <laughs> yeah yeah you're on the list for sure but hey you just wait and see okay 10 years down the line things turn around a little bit and i'm fighting you know i'm in there helping the you know anti-soviet freedom fighters and charlie wilson's gonna <laughs> give me a bunch of weapons or something i don't know <laughs> Strange bed, but he's he's played by Tom Hanks, so don't even worry about it. (laughs) He's such a nice guy. Yeah. Oh, totally nice. Non CIA connected Tom Hanks. I didn't like that movie before I was communist, but it was mostly because I don't like Julia Roberts and her weird face. (laughs) Um, I just have a thing about it. Anti Julia Roberts. Got it. I'm sorry. I just I don't like her face. I don't like it. (laughs) Maybe she's a nice person, but I can't can't do it. Could be, but you never know about people. For instance, they didn't know about this guy who was a U.S. diplomat, an ambassador, Victor Manuel Rocha. Okay. U.S. ambassador uh, who turned out to be a spy for Cuba. (gasps) Okay. Yeah, he was doing some Americans shit. Not full-fledged, like he wasn't like a sleeper cell sort of thing. But, uh, yeah, he was apparently spying for decades for Cuba's intelligence service. At least, you know, it's alleged, but, like, come on, they're probably going to find stuff on him. So, it was interesting, this article in the Wall Street Journal proceeded to just, like, post a lot of L's for... um, (laughs) For the CIA? For the CIA, for American capitalism in general, and just uh, generally make Cuba look cool. In the article, like on accident. I love that. Thanks for the free PR. <laughs> it was pretty good. So they talk about, you know, Cuba's most successful spy, this guy's predecessor, Ana Belen Montes, the senior Cuban analyst at the Defense Intelligence Agency in the U.S. Wait, 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 wait. You worked? Yeah, yeah. For the U.S.? Ana Belen Montes, she worked as the senior Cuban analyst at the Defense Intelligence Agency. <laughs> and was a spy for Cuba. In 2002. Uh, yeah, no, she worked there for 17 years, known within the U.S. government as the, quote, queen of Cuba for her dominance <laughs> of Cuban issues. She was oh then, she pled guilty to spying for Cuba uh, from that position. So she was <laughs> recently so released good. in 2023. Uh, yeah. That's I, I'm just like imagining her coworkers being like, man, how are you like so good at understanding the Cuban people? Like you're just you seem so in touch. She's just like, like I'm in touch with the masses. Like, I don't know what to tell you. It's <laughs> part about being so in the revolutionary funny. spirit, which I don't agree with at all. No, nope, not at all. But I do know a lot about it. <laughs> <laughs> so that was like the the more famous 
kind of predecessor to this. They also talk about a husband and wife couple. Cute. Walter Myers and Gwendolyn Myers, who pled guilty in 2009. They were State Department officials. Or wow. he was, I think, and she wasn't. I don't know. Man, they got up high. They pled guilty in 2009 to having spied for Cuba for 30 years. Jesus Christ, it's so long. <laughs> and here's what I love. They say, what the cases have in common, according to U.S. officials and intelligence analysts, is that the agents of Cuba appear to have been driven by deep sympathy for the island nation's revolution rather than by financial gain for spying on the U.S. <laughs> I mean, meanwhile, like CIA's out here doing Looney Tune shit to try to kill Castro. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're like, uh, what if we uh, fuck up his beard? I think people would uh, not like it. Yeah, they would <laughs> laugh at him and call him a soy Wojak. <laughs> the newest guy, Rocha. In three long-recorded meetings with an undercover FBI agent, he showed his hostility for the U.S. and his undying allegiance to Cuba's communist regime. He made it clear that his work for Cuba wasn't for money. According to Brian Littell, a retired former CIA analyst, he referred to Roach's tape declarations made to an FBI investigation. He's like, oh, yeah, he was still professing to be in love with the revolution. Oh, damn. (laughs) Like... Can't buy these fuckers. Fucking dope. That's so sick. He's similar to a handful of other U.S. officials recruited to spy for the Cuban government during the 80s and 70s. Uh, the, the article takes a cheap shot here. It's like, during those Cold War days, Fidel Castro's Cuba still had the elan of a revolutionary David fighting <laughs> off against a mighty imperialist Uncle Sam. Okay. Like, oh, they were cool As if they don't then. have that now. Yeah, like... <laughs> Oh, but they were. It's they were all hip, good now. You know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Back when communism was cool and new. <laughs> yeah. Uh, U.S. Ambassador Columbia says the normal motivation for American spies is that they're irritated by somebody they work for or they need the money. But these people, <laughs> recruited by the Cubans, are motivated by their commitment to the revolution. Yeah, they, they say that, that the Queen of Cuba lady was. Um, was inspired by anti-American ideology. And the retired FBI agent who investigated her said the Cuban intelligence agency was really good at recruiting people sympathetic to their cause, while Russians usually paid. The Soviets, (laughs) apparently, they were just, like, buying people off. That's how they were. I mean, that's fair. Having watched the Americans, I will say, yeah, it's usually blackmail or money. Yeah. Blackmail if if you can get it. The Cubans and the other ones... um, in Nicaragua, wasn't it? The 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 chick they the had lady? from the yeah, 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 you know. She was passionate. Yeah. And that she was, was that was just like for her people, you know. I like this <laughs> yeah. And to to kind of to conclude, they kind of give some more details about the different situations. In the Montez investigation, for example, the FBI was tipped off to having numerous Cuban spies within the US government, but not having <laughs> enough information to, at the time to identify any of them. Oh, my God. The FBI guy from earlier said, yeah, we had enough to know we had a lot of problems <laughs> and not a lot of leads to go on. Pound for pound, they're one of the oh. best intelligence agencies in the world. Wow. Imagine getting that email. I mean, it's not an email back then. It's a memo. Just And you just like put your stuff down. Just go like look around like. 
Hell yeah, FBI just It doesn't us. cross your mind to check out the Queen of Cuba, but okay. <laughs> no. Yeah, you send her this. Like, can, do you know anybody? Like, Do you know anyone? Yeah. Just, no, I don't fucking know. <laughs> she just points to some like random white guy like, I think it's him. Yeah, no. Here's what she said at her sentencing. She said she found U.S. policy toward Cuba unfair and, quote, felt morally obligated to help the island defend itself from our efforts to impose our values and our political system on it. Hell yeah. Uh, the married couple, they pled guilty to spying for Cuba. Yeah, Walter, the guy, was an intelligence analyst specializing in Europe. He was recruited by Cuban intelligence after making a trip to the island in 1978. During his visit, he declared in a diary entry his affinity for Castro and the Cuban government. So he and his wife were recruited to work for Havana the following year by a Cuban agent who visited their home in the revolutionary hotbed of blank. Where do you think in the United States these people lived? This is the married couple? Mm-hmm. And they were white, right? I, it does not say, but... I'm basing this they off are their last name, which is not always... Live. Okay, Ohio? No. But it is Midwest, Midwestern-ish? Okay, Michigan? Wester, Wester, more, more, more western than Michigan. <laughs> uh, Kansas. Close. South Dakota. Oh. South Dakota. South Dakota. The South Dakota. The red plains oh. of South Dakota. Filled, wow. with, filled to the brim with reds. They had to like live near Mount Rushmore and they're just like, look at those fucks. <laughs> I hate it. I hate America. Uh, and so, you know, the Cuban agent met with them in South Dakota and urged him to pursue a career either at the State Department or the CIA. For the next 30 years, Myers and his wife communicated with their Cuban handlers using shortwave radios and met with agents overseas. The meetings Damn. with an undercover FBI agent in 2009, they admitted their activities. The guy viewed more than 200 top secret documents dealing with Cuba, sentenced to life in prison, blah, blah, blah. So that, 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 was, that was just pretty cool. <laughs> that that like, is fucking sick. I need, I need Americans too. the Cuba stories. Yeah. <laughs> this time it's cuba (laughs) yeah it's it's like you know and i don't even i don't have any access to anything cool to do this like even if i were approached by cuban (laughs) intelligence i would be like i don't have a lot to give you man i am man i don't know to tell you your time would be better spent elsewhere as much (laughs) as like I, i agree with you you're fighting the good fight yeah what can you get me something else to do yeah but in the belly yeah, of the beast, we have like, you know, certain <laughs> roles. But going back to the guy that was recently captured, um, the unsealed complaint said he told an undercover FBI investigator he um, he had worked for Cuba's communist government as a covert agent since at least 1981 to the present day. Some of his colleagues and acquaintances were shocked by the accusations against him, including noted friend of the show... And by that, I mean, mortal enemy, punch this guy. It's on site if you ever see him. Felix Ismael Rodriguez. Okay. A Cuban-American who worked with the CIA and is known for having captured revolutionary guerrilla leader Ernesto Che Guevara in Bolivia. <gasps> Fuck that guy. He Total killed my man. piece of shit. Felix yeah. Rodriguez, CIA asshole. Totally punchable. Like, you oh, could punch sure. this guy. You wouldn't have to feel bad about it. Mm -mm. He sucks. He said upon hearing this news, quote, it seems impossible that he was working for Cuban intelligence. (laughs) 
If true, it will be the greatest disappointment of my life. <laughs> so, this guy needs a more disappointing life. Yeah. So, Rocha, you get the red star. You get the you know Order of Lenin. You get the <laughs> Kropotkin Award, whatever the anarchists give. Um, you get all of our red thumbs up for thoroughly <laughs> disappointing. Felix Rodriguez. Yeah, just make his day worse if you can. Yeah. Any, any, anytime you do that, by whatever means, it's good. Yeah, that's always good. <laughs> we forgot to mention fucking Henry Kissinger is dead. He died after our most recent episode, too? Yeah, it was like God damn. the day, I think, the day before it came out, before Winnipeg came out. And the day after we recorded, didn't we? Because we recorded Tuesday? Yeah. Yeah. We recorded Tuesday, yeah. We've just missed it. Yeah. Damn. That goes to your theory that our weeks are flipped of. (laughs) Uh, I I put some stuff in like our stories and Twitter and stuff. So yeah, we're happy that he's dead, but disappointed he didn't die sooner and more painfully. Yeah, he did die like peacefully. I think there are probably people who said that they loved him, that were around him, that were there, you know. Oh, Grampy Kissinger. I don't know. You know, oh, Grampy. He was, he, he, uh, he died comfortably. He had it too easy. Not enough disappointment in his life either. So the thing about Kissinger that I have read a couple takes on, and I kind of agree with the sentiment, because I've, I've read a variety of them, but the, the sentiment I most agree with is that he was a grotesque personification and kind of like embodiment uh, but uh, of American empire, but not a shaper of it to any extent that he like drove American foreign policy. It's sort of this idea, you know, this anti great man idea of like someone would have followed those same material drives uh, and, and interest groups and served them in the same way to where essentially he was just giving voice to in this unique he was this unique kind of nexus of in the in the sense that he amassed power in a way that allowed him to direct foreign policy almost single-handedly like mm-hmm. apart from the president he was like in nixon's ear or whatever but like everything ran through him to run yeah. foreign policy so in that way he was very centralized but like Interest-wise, he was just doing American empire. Yeah, symptom rather than the cause. Yeah, he was just, since it was so centralized, it was all rolled into him. And so it was like that much more grotesque. And so I kind of agree with that in a way. I still think that, <laughs> I think that in doing so, you not only wrap up all the power in your hands and all, you know, all the imagery and stuff, but you also wrap up all the blood onto your hands and so regardless of whether it would have been carried out without you in our timeline, it was carried out through you. So fuck you. (laughs) Yeah. Like you didn't fucking stop it. Did you? So (laughs) yeah, you don't get a pass. Yeah. No, in our timeline, you not only didn't fucking stop it, you signed up to run it. And so, (laughs) yeah, you were okay with it on several levels. Yeah. And I mean, even afterward, I mean, even afterward, he was constantly justifying himself and saying, Oh, yeah, sure, we carpet-bombed Cambodia and dropped more bombs on it than we did on Japan in World War II. We gave, you know, rise to Pol Pot because we did that. You know, we, how many people did we disfigure? Uh, How many people's babies did we disfigure Mm -hmm. in Vietnam? 
because of Agent Orange. Uh, how many people do we burn off their skin and everything because of napalm and atrocities we visited and stuff? And how many of how much of that was past the dead the 1968 like peace negotiations that we sabotaged to get Nixon elected? Richard Milhouse Nixon. We all needed him to be president, <laughs> so we did this. We killed however many people. It was worth it because they were just Vietnamese, you know. And and you have to say well. That's all on you, man. Like, you signed up to do that. Like, that's... Yeah. There's no getting around those. Yeah. Someone else might have stepped in and, and done something similar, but you literally, first player, like, active controller, you did that. <laughs> so. Uh, so, fuck him. Yeah, fuck him. Piss on his grave, etc. And continue pissing on other people <laughs> who are in the positions of power. When, and when people say, oh, but, you know, he was a human being and, oh, he needs to be thought about in his timeline. He should have thought about those other human beings that he fucking genocided. Yeah. And you can be well within, like, I don't know, my response would be like, yeah, I did think about it. I do think about him in historical context. And he sucked. <laughs> you can think about a lot of things in the historical timeline. You can think about American slavery. And, oh, yeah, lots of people are like, it's fine, you know, Africans aren't it's just real what everybody people. Did. And it's just, it's okay to enslave them. And, you know, in some radical aspects, it's a positive good because you're civilizing them and Christianizing them. Ugh. Yeah, people thought that. And other people thought, I must give my entire life. I must sacrifice my being on this earth and go and meet my maker early to bring about their freedom. And those people were like John Brown. Mm-hmm. You know, some people actually did stuff and like fought against it. Uh, you know, lots of people in apartheid South Africa said, this is just how it is. I'm not like a pro apartheid person, but I just live here and it's, uh, what am I going to do? Lots of people shambled through their lives like that. But some people allied with the radical communists or secretly became communist members and fought against yeah. that. And that's Nelson Mandela. Right, and everyone says, oh, now that's that's a role model now. But back then when he was a communist, not so much. I mean, that's the reason we tell these stories is is to point out that. And I love John Brown as an example in that, that like not everyone went along with it. There's always been resistance and there's always been people to stand up and say like, hey, this is fucked up. Yeah, you hear that narrative of, of well, you know, that's just how it was or that's just, you know, the march of progress even. And that doesn't have to be the case. I don't know. It's an argument against this whole like, oh, think about the historical times or something like that. It's like, while you should, you shouldn't do so mindlessly in like a pardoning sense and just like, oh, yeah, well, you can't expect this really literally in any historical situation like that. You're going to find dissenting voices because the big mystery of history is that at no point in time in it can you find people who are like, chill with being enslaved yeah that's just not a thing people accept like yeah. again like liberals didn't invent freedom <laughs> like that's how humans are supposed to operate and when people tell us we can't do that we get mad yeah i don't know i think too like i again i sorry i've been listening to a lot of npr i guess i've been driving a lot lately <laughs> um <laughs> and and there was uh i didn't listen to the whole program but there was a a program that was going to go into the history of Hamas 
But what frustrated me is their their setup was, now there's been a lot of conflict between Israel and Palestine. We don't have time to get into all of that here today. And they started at the birth of Hamas in like 1987. And I was like, what happened before 1987? Like, come on, like, those are some important parts. Why did they decide to do that? Uh, yeah, like, they're, just, they're, they're mean. <laughs> yeah. Like the conclusion was very much just like it was both is bad on both sides. Anyway, 1987. <laughs> so I don't know I didn't listen to the whole program. Maybe it was more nuanced than that, but like it was not a great setup. That's for sure. <laughs> not a great thesis statement. <laughs> yeah, that's and that's honestly what a lack of historical materialism does to MF is you just you just end up saying shit like that of like yeah we're just gonna start here. Like, this seems right and guys that's that's why all our historical episodes end up like i start fucking 50 years before we're mm-hmm. at least it's just like well okay but you have to understand this yeah i mean i've done that with like my fucking art history episodes like you can't just look at one topic it's it is all connected influences matter like that's i think a big part of being human is <laughs> yeah. like half of therapy is like what do my parents do to me it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Abby also makes fun of me for this. And probably most people would because it's not what you're necessarily supposed to do with a D&D character. But I literally always start with that, like the grandparents. I'm like, <laughs> okay, well, here's like... Uh, That's I, funny. I think of like, here's like who their parents would be i'm like well mm-hmm. how are they that way well here's how their parents yeah. were and that's where i cut i've off. never done grandparents for a character really <laughs> i i start with parents uh i'm not as detailed you know but like i flesh out more details just as enough parents, yeah you know, but that's funny it's it's the roots it's and, and it's yeah and that's that's how you've got to look at it i think it's it's generational roots too like i i think i don't know the american flag conversation i had really like <laughs> I was saying some radical shit in front of like a child and I was like, I don't fucking care. I want them to hear this. I want them to know like my people were fucking genocided by Spaniards and like it's part of the same colonialist project project that like killed so many of my ancestors and I'll never know how cool their shit could have been, you know? Yeah, it's just, it's gone. And now I'm part of them and Mm -hmm. that's fucked up. I'm part of two imperialist nations and like that's fucked. Yeah. And what can you do at that point? It's, It's like, you, you, I think the the path forward is the path blazed by Fidel Castro of saying, "I am, you know, I'm I'm mm-hmm. part of I'm part of the Spaniards who came here and enslaved my country. Fuck them." Yeah, that doesn't mean I'm okay with it. That doesn't give them an excuse. That doesn't mean that I can forgive that because I am part of it. And even if I were like 100% like white, <laughs> you know, just colonial Plymouth Rock shit, that doesn't mean I can forgive that either. Like, yeah. I shouldn't because I should be able to have like the moral fortitude to be like, hey, I came from that and that's still fucked up. Yeah, Eugene Debs, white as fuck. Still a socialist. I mean, you can, you, just, you know, your background... What have you? I mean, let it fuel you if it if it's helpful for you. But yeah, Engels had you know the factories in Great Britain, yeah. factory dad in, in imperial like in the imperial heartland. Fuck it, like, let's overthrow the thing. You know, it doesn't yeah. matter. And I don't know. That's uh, I think one of the things you should keep in mind. You know, as a listener of this show and probably lots of other things, you know, you're gathering this information about seemingly very disparate conflicts and episodes and stuff of you know you know what's 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 the point sometimes it's kind of like this is fun (laughs) to know and kind of interesting but hopefully 
We try to make it those things. <laughs> like, you know, sometimes we talk about it in the episodes, or most of the time we do, but still, like, to zoom out from even that context of what's the point in learning all these things? Yeah, why are we talking about this? It's not just to draw specific lessons, I think, but to do the one of the greatest exercises of the human mind, or people really point to this as like, oh, this is very clever, this is like super intelligence, what have you, is drawing connections, drawing mm-hmm. dots between seemingly unrelated, being able to like see those parallels and stuff. That's yeah. That's one of the one of the real intelligences that we have that we still haven't outsourced to ChatGPT quite yet. <laughs> drawing those parallels, I think, is one of the key things you're going to like gain from knowing all these things is is like being able to see the connections of people fighting for their independence in various you know and, and seeing the differences they're in but like seeing that that's all part of a story of call me the freedom the guy way. but yeah human liberation you know no like i agree because i mean listeners know i got the swiss cheese brain over here i can't remember a single fucking like date or you know <laughs> very specific things from any episodes like i'll get questions from listeners like have you done an episode on this i'm like i genuinely Did have we? to search the archive because <laughs> yeah. i don't fucking know yeah <laughs> like i had to search our own spotify list and i was like that's kind of embarrassing <laughs> but that's that's the way god made me <laughs> but like i i still think i get a lot of value from like i know the gist of these stories so i know enough to know hey john brown stood up for what was right and got his ass killed for it you know, like I, I know enough to to say like, hey, like Nelson Mandela did this and this. And like, I know the, the broad strokes of it. And that's one thing I have been impressed with seeing the narratives around Gaza is I have start, started seeing a lot more revolutionary content in general showing up of like, hey, let's talk about what's fucking going on in the Congo right now. Free Congo, free Hawaii, free like all these like I loved seeing these posts where they were saying like, yes, free Palestine and all these other places because like it's connected. And I love that people are starting to see that connection and, and be emboldened by being able to point those out. Yeah. Ideally we will see more and more of that. Possibly we will see a huge crackdown on that to where they just crush, you know, crush all the things. They're pretty good at it. (laughs) All right. Next week we're doing a movie night. Communist movie night. Woo! Uh, this week we'll be watching The Wobblies. Hmm, okay. About some IWW shit, I assume? You assume correctly. This is about the international workers of the world. It's a documentary from 1979. It's older than most of you, probably. Because uh, it's older than us. I'm hoping for good graphics, bad hair. <laughs> Uh, I've always watched this on YouTube. Uh, you can probably watch it on YouTube. Um, I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe they walled it off somewhere, I guess, but I've watched it a couple of times there. It's really good. You have some good old folk songs by Utah Phillips, uh, having, uh, interviews with old communists, like talking about how they were, you know, and uh, old, old, like diehard communists and you have old, mm-hmm. like just unionized workers you know i was uh i was an immigrant working in this factory and they said hey come join the iww and we're gonna you know do this and we go out on strike and everything like you know it's it's real firsthand shit and they talk about the strikes they did 
They talk about the struggles they had. It's cool. Is there a cute black cat in it? Uh, I actually don't recall Ugh. there being a black cat, but I mean, it's possible. There's okay. It's well, not uh, not memorable enough. So apparently, not cute enough. Yeah. Uh, I had another joke question. What was it? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's how. That's like a formula for creating a good singer is naming baby like some sort of Western name, like John Denver. You know, Utah. Utah. Like you gotta have like state or city. You know, Western state kind of name, and then like very American last name. Geography plus Americana equals. Folk song, yeah. folk hero. Like Montana Smith. Yeah. yeah. That sounds like a lesbian folk singer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Idaho Johnson. Pretty good, yeah. right? Pretty good. Like I'm <laughs> I think that's the formula. <laughs> if you ever if you need an alter ego for your folk singer, that's the formula. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh Johnny Nevada. Johnny Nevada. You can flip it if yeah, you want. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So the wobblies it is. Cool. Next week, be there. Looking forward to it. And uh, we'll see you then. All right. Bye. Bye. Hey there, comrades. Just jumping in to remind you of all of our social media. We are on Twitter at Teach Communism, Instagram at Teach Me Communism. You can shoot us an email. That's teachmecommunism at gmail.com. Any of those places are good to send us an episode suggestion or a question anything you think would be useful feedback for us or just your admiration. If you want to admire us in a public manner, and you should, you can go to Apple Podcasts to give us a review. It is the best way to help people find the show. Love when people write and review us. Please do both. We are also on YouTube if that's how you prefer to listen to podcasts, or if you know someone that's the only way they'll listen to podcasts, send them to our page. And we have a Patreon. For five bucks a month, you get access to our notes for each week's episode, including the backlog of notes, which is a very handy resource for up-and-coming commies. And at the end of the year, all of the funds from Patreon will be given to local mutual aid in the DFW area. So, ain't going to line our pockets. Finally, we have merch. Check us out at Tee Public. You can find shirts and I believe also stickers and magnets and all kinds of fun stuff with catchphrases from the show or episode art, stuff like that. The link to that store is in the show notes, so check that out. Okay, that's all the internet. Join us next time for another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. Bye, y'all.